0: This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Hello again, everyone. It's great to be with you and talk about our core values, and this is number five. And we were thinking we would do this last one and then a summation next week uh, that would kind of revisit the core values. But we're missing so many people here this morning that I think we'll just do this sermon over again next week. So you guys can just sleep in next week. And no, don't do that. But I do think that a lot of people woke up this morning and looked outside and they were like, nah, I'm going to go back and get my warm bed. Um, But Core Value 5 this week, and we'll do a short summation, and then we're actually going to enter into some uh, fairly controversial topics of discussion, and uh, so you guys can come and learn or be challenged or just argue with me in your heads back and forth, but I think it'll be a a fun exercise for our church. I'm not going to tell you now what it is. I want to leave you in suspense, so you'll come in two weeks, but operating principles, this is Core Value 5, send into service. As the Father sent Jesus... So he sends us. And if we are part of the church, then we are sent as surely as he is. In town exists to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Portland, to be the agents of his healing presence in the world. Let's pray. Father, we are both those that are tasked to send the churches to send people into the world. And if we are yours, then we are sent just as surely as you are. And I pray that We would realize the active and the passive parts of that. We pray that we would realize that you send us and that your church is to be a sending agency. And Father, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning, that we would begin to see our friends and neighbors, our family and loved ones, and our city as those through whom you want to love through us. And we pray that we would take that task seriously. And we pray that you would connect in our hearts, not just the task, but that that action is part of the very core of who we are as Christians. So I pray you would encourage us, you would challenge us, that you would send us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a mother swallow bird started moving her three baby chicks out on the end of the branch farther and farther and farther until one of them fell off. And somewhere between the branch and the water below, the baby chick's wings started flapping, and it flew away. And then the second one did the same thing. But the third was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, its grip on the branch loosened just enough so that the body could fall, and the bird is hanging there like a cartoon. The mama bird was without remorse, utterly And she pecked at the baby bird's talons over and over until it was more painful for the poor bird to hold on than to risk falling. So it let go, and it started pumping its wings. You see, the mama bird knew what the chick didn't, that it would actually fly. There was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly made to do. You see, birds have feet, and they can walk. Birds have talons and they can hang on to a branch, but that's not what they're made to do. Their characteristic action, at least as we think of it, is flying. And it's not until they fly that they're living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. The Apostle John is trying to push us, in a sense, out of the nest. And if we look where he is pushing us, it should utterly terrify us that the true test of faith is not what you say you believe. It's not the neurons that are firing in your head about propositions. No matter how strongly you cling to what you say you believe, it's, the question is really whether your life is being refashioned into a life of sacrificial love for others. And this should be deeply unsettling. But what is wonderful about it is that if we will allow God to push us out of the nest, then we can truly begin to experience the life that He has made us for and the role that He has made us to inhabit, to be sent into service. So, we're going to look at what is this? What does this look like? First of all, why is it important? And then how do we get it? How do we cultivate this life of service? So what is it? He tells us very simply in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It is a life spent intentionally elevating the needs of others and then sacrificing our resources in order to meet those needs. And he gives a very specific example in verse 17 that is not holistic, it's not the only thing, but he talks about a very specific thing, that is those who are in material need. Now, if you were reading this letter when it was written and sent, you would probably have very few material possessions. You would have very little, if any, discretionary income. So in almost every case where a reader took this up and said, I will live for someone else, I will carry their burdens, it meant choosing to help someone in a way that would drastically affect your lifestyle. So for you and I, by contrast, extravagantly wealthy relative to the rest of the world, just about any country and culture, you would think it would be Much easier, right? Because we have margins, we have discretionary income, some of us do. One sociologist of religion says that he noticed a transition in how newspapers talked about people in the United States in the transitional time of the 1900s. And he said, at the turn of the 20th century, you commonly see a word that is a bit quaint, that in describing the 70 or 80 million Americans who existed at that time, newspapers, magazines, almost without exception, referred to them as citizens. But by the turn of the millennium, year 2000, a different word had become a customary way of talking about the now 300 million people. Any any guesses? Citizen-consumer. Consumer becomes the way that we are talked about, we are tagged. Practically speaking, the word consumer did not exist in 1900 because there wasn't very much to consume. But citizens still had tremendous relevance because our nation was built upon, at least relative to other countries, this presumption that you would be involved in the workings and everyday workings of civic life. But the economic growth, which was unprecedented in the 1900s, created this enormous array of consumer goods that no one could have imagined before, and they were available even to the average person. And studies have shown over and over that one of the greatest psychological challenges that we now face of the typical resident in America is the abundance of choice. And he says this, we have become adept at minutely examining and excavating our own preferences and needs from what toothpaste we buy to what we rent and look at on Netflix, leveraging the worldwide power of brands to carve out our sense of identity. This dramatic shift in the way that we name ourselves does not mean that we have stopped being citizens necessarily. It just means that on a daily basis, the place where we find meaning and satisfaction is not primarily in civic participation, but in consumption. We are still citizens, but many of us find our identity, who we are, even our response to the most pressing issues of our time in what we buy, in what we consume. So even though our discretionary income has grown in unprecedented ways, so has our attachment to things and time and our private life and our comfort and the way that we actually determine our happiness by those things. So while we might have more to share, uncoupling our hearts and our tendency to hoard and protect may be even more difficult now. Now think with me for a moment. Sacrificing in order to gain something is easy. Sacrificial service is both effortless and it's impossible. What do I mean by that? Well, it's effortless because we all sacrifice every day. We sacrifice our secondary values for a primary value. We sacrifice something that we have in order to get something greater that we want. We easily extend ourselves or overextend ourselves for a vacation, for a new car, for new clothes, for a new degree. We give up time, we give up money in order to gain something that we value more. So we instinctively live sacrificially every single day of our lives. It's just not trained towards service to others. And what John wants, what the Bible continually says that God wants, is that that instinct be retrained, refashioned, reformulated, that we would find our happiness and flourishing in the happiness and flourishing of others. It feels, however, instinctive but almost impossible because this is the most central challenge of the Christian faith. It is the displacement of the self. It feels impossible. Because we know how to sacrifice a secondary desire for a primary one. It only comes effortlessly when it's directed to our wants. But this passage tells us to sacrifice in the same way for other people's good. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives. Choosing to meet someone's needs, to carry their burdens, it means saying, I choose to diminish my choices and my lifestyle so that other people will have more and a better life. I diminish my freedom in order for you to have freedom. But here's where it gets even more difficult, if not impossible seeming, is that John goes far beyond just a, a simple transaction. That is, I see your need, and though I don't really want to meet it, I'm going to do so because I'm a good person, and I want to be righteous. I want to do what I should. Verse 17 says, if anyone sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Well, let's stop for a moment, because this word pity is a little bit paternal, in terms of the way we think about other people's needs. But it's also very sanitary and very tame in terms of interpreting something that is very graphic. The King James translates this part. It says, If anyone sees a brother or sister in need and closes off his bowels towards them, then the love of God is not in them. What what in the world? What John is arguing is that the love of God manifests itself in your inner person. And if your, listen, if your deepest desires are not stirred up by the needs of very specific classes of people, then something is deeply wrong. Meeting God means treating His passions as yours, having His concerns show up in your guts. That when, That is, when the gospel gets a hold of you, the needs of others grip you in a way, in a profound way, that you begin to see service to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the hungry, the marginalized, not as an add-on exercise to the faith, but the very core of it. And you begin to talk about your own spirituality and measure your own maturity based upon those things, not just what I know And what I believe. So the what is it, first point's a little longer than the rest, so don't worry. The what is it is God is pushing you and I, pushing in town, out of the nest. Why is it important? Because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And I think whether we would call ourselves a Christian or not, this is one thing that we should be able to all agree upon this morning, is that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Verse 18 says, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Two things bound together, truth and action, and then words and deeds. And these things that John is trying to hold together, the 19th and 20th centuries really saw the church pulling these things apart. Some churches begin to be focused upon serving, but say, we're not so sure about the truth. It's kind of up for grabs, so let's make the world a better place. And so you see churches that are bringing in the soup kitchen, but then excising the cross, excising some of the difficult central core things that make Christianity, Christianity. Now there's a lot of great things going on and people are being fed and all of that is wonderful. Wonderful. But it's missing part of what John is saying. And then on the other side, churches that are more common in our tradition are very aware of the truth. They love talking about the truth, very confident of the truth, maybe even a little OCD about the truth. And oh, by the way, the truth happens to cohere with what I believe and what my community believes. It's a lot of words, but fewer obvious deeds. And in town, as we talk about send in the service, wants to be a church where these things are actually linked, where they're inseparable, that truth and action, word and deeds go together. And that when this happens in a local church, it is a sign of resurrection and it's a sign of belonging. First of all, resurrection, because when you give away something in service to others, you're dying to the use of that thing so that it will create life in someone else's experience. Death is creating new life for others. That is resurrection. And if in town decided, whatever it costs, we're going to be a church that binds truth and action, that reenacts resurrection in other people's lives. What if all of us agreed to that to the degree that the city would be sad if we left? That the city would be thankful for The role that we play because there are such visible active actions of service what if all of us begin to say i will not just be a consumer i will be a citizen of my world a citizen of my neighborhood a citizen of my family what if we all begin to say in my own life how can i begin to limit my options so that others can have more what if we all begin to say, I want to give more so that the church can flourish and so that deeds of mercy and at- and service can go forth? It could be a sign of resurrection, dying to our needs so that life can form in other places. But it's also a sign of belonging and this is where as I said earlier, it's very uncomfortable because Service to others is one of the primary signs of true active faith, that you've moved from simply knowing about Jesus to actually belonging to him. This letter that John has written, it's a beautiful letter about assurance. How do I know that I belong to Jesus? And he picks the very same thing. He picks other things too, but what we're focusing on Is what he says over and over, or he says what the Bible focuses upon over and over. How do you have assurance? The question is, do you care for others in the name of Jesus? That is one of the primary signs of belonging to the church and belonging to Jesus. If you really want to know whether you know Jesus, ask, do I intentionally give my time to the powerless and the marginalized? Do I open up my schedule, do I divest myself of resources and time and energy for those people, groups, that God identifies over and over in the Bible that He is passionately for? It's a good question to ask ourselves, especially those of us that would say that we belong to Him. But maybe we ask then finally, how do we get it? What is it? Why is it important? How do we get it? How do we cultivate it? And I want to say two things, and then we'll be done. You have to learn to see others differently, and you have to learn to see ourselves differently. First of all, others. There is a number of wonderful reality shows. One's called Secret Millionaire, Undercover Boss. There's a few others where someone leaves behind their rather luxurious life of privilege and takes on a secret identity and lives undercover, deprived in a deprived area of the country or in the minimum wage part of the company that they happen to be the CEO of. And they take on this role for about a week, and they choose to live as an equal. They don't go to this luxurious hotel at night and then come to work in the minimum wage part of the company. They live in the type of hotel that a person who is making minimum wage might be able to afford one night. They wear normal clothes and they learn their stories and they hear what are the needs of the people that work for me? What are the needs of the people that are in my neighborhood down the street from my luxury condo? And then at the end of the show, of course, they show up to the people that they've met in their normal everyday outfit and they're revealed as a millionaire or the CEO And what has happened in that week is they have learned their stories. They have met these people relationally. They're not any longer just numbers on a spreadsheet or the person that happens to live down the street. They are real people with real stories, and their entire posture changes towards them. Their relationship to these people is utterly different. C.S. Lewis says, the holiest object presented to your senses is that person right in front of you made in the image of God. The holiest object presented to your senses is that person made in the image of God right in front of you. That is the people you know, the people you're in relationship with, the people that you pass on the street every day. That person panhandling on the corner, the addict who can't find a job and has nowhere to go, the immigrant who is unemployed, the person who claims racial oppression in their own life and in their own group, the family member who annoys you, they are all made in the image of God and are of incalculable worth to Him. But in a world of email and Facebook and Snapchat, Snapchat, where we live, it's sort of a remove from real relationship. From even our closest friends, where we're constantly reading about people, we have to see the other. We have to cultivate intentionally real relationships. We have to show up in other people's lives to have those opportunities to serve wonderful French film, 2007, Paris Jatim, is made up of 18 movie shorts. One of them is called Bastille. And in this short, a man is sitting at a coffee shop and the viewer knows that he is waiting for his wife to come in. And he's going to meet with her and tell her all of the things that she does that annoys him and ask for Divorce so that he can live with his flight attendant girlfriend. But at the meeting, the wife starts talking first, and she bursts into tears in this coffee shop and announces to him that she has terminal cancer. And he is crushed. Not so much at that point because of the cancer, but because he has to give up this life that he's envisioned with this flight attendant and actually care for his wife. But as he begins to care for her needs over the last months of her life, all of the idiosyncrasies that had annoyed him so much began to be the traits that made her real to him and made him begin to notice her and see her and fall in love with her again, to see her as a human. And he rubs her feet and he combs her hair and he hates shopping, but he takes her shopping anyway He does all the things to her and with her that they used to do when they were madly in love and first married. And he says this, by acting like a man in love, I became a man in love. By sacrificing his life, by foregoing the very vision of life that he thought this is where happiness lies, with this flight attendant girl who's younger more objectively beautiful, and all of those things. This is where happiness is. It was actually not by pursuing it, but by foregoing it, that he became a man in love. Foregoing what he had staked his happiness upon and serving someone else is where he finds his joy. Sacrificial service is what you and I were made for, but it takes practice. It takes intentional cultivation, and it takes a nearness to people that we actively avoid oftentimes in our social media world. But it's where, if you will engage, you will feel most alive. You will feel like that bird that has fallen out of the nest and before it hits the ground begins to fly. And it's where you will meet Jesus. An act of service, friends, is more than valuable than a hundred Bible studies. I think that's right. I just sort of made that up, but I'm going to stand by it. Meeting someone in service and choosing to forego our own ego, our own comfort so that they can have comfort is probably more valuable than a hundred Bible studies of just stuffing things into your head. We have to change how we see others, and then finally, quickly, we have to change how we see ourselves. And for that, I want to go back to verse 1, which we didn't read, but it will probably sound familiar to a number of you. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. See in that verse, see what great love is. Look, behold, this is the, the guy in the bear suit on roller skates with headphones on and the sign spinning. You know, stop concentrating on driving. Look over here. There's a liquidation sale. There's $5 pizza. This is sort of what John is doing here. Look, behold. Stop what you're doing. What unearthly, incredible love the Father has for you. You are the one with terminal cancer that God said, I will come and rescue them and heal them. And understanding how God chose to care for you at your worst, chose to care for your spiritual poverty, is foundational for us to try and learn to do this for others. In other words, the more that we see ourselves as the outcast, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the refugee, the more we will begin to see ourselves and others and want to care for them. Jesus looked upon our need and said, I will go. I will heal. I will restore. I will die for them. And one of the big reasons that we choose to hold on to our resources instead of give them away, instead of using our time to serve other people is that we believe that we're the only ones looking out for our own own interest. We live in a zero sum world. So I got to get, I got to gain, I got to protect, I got to hold on to, I got to hoard or we might run out. We might not get what we want. But God says, look, behold, I have given you everything. That he's not a spiritual taskmaster that you have to curry favor with that you hope if you perform well enough, then maybe God will care for you and bless you. No, he says that He is our loving Father. And He cares for us more than any earthly father could ever conceive of. And so John says, I dare you to live as if that's true. And I want to dare in town to live as if that's true. That we can serve others to the place where it feels initially like this is painful and I don't want to do it anymore. But consistently over time, we learned, this is what I was made for. This is what the church was made for. It wasn't made to gather everyone everyone in and just pour knowledge into them and reassure them. It was meant to make them uncomfortable, to make all of us uncomfortable. The church pew should be a very uncomfortable place if we're doing it right, because we're saying that you are sent in the service, and we're going to keep pushing And that pushes myself as well. I dare you to consider that, to believe that deeply, because if you do, you'll move into the hurts and the needs of other people. But the question of do I belong to this church, do I belong to Jesus, is answered with do I have an inner ache? Do I have a deep unrest in my soul for the needs of others to serve them? And so I send you and I send myself. and The church sends its members into service and it can never lose that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this at times would be an uncomfortable place, that it would be unsettling, that there would be times of great disequilibrium as we come and we hear these things that you call us to, And we hear you granting love to people that we can't can't understand how you could love them. And I pray that we would see that we are those people for other people. And I pray that we would cling to you and we would cling to the gospel and that it would become so rich and so full for us that we just couldn't hold on to it, that we would want to give it to others at great risk to ourselves and our own comfort. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.